episode 13 with fashion icon Lana Turner. Welcome to the Institute of Black Imagination. I'm your host, Dario Kalmis, an artist, writer, brand consultant, and generally curious fellow. And each week we bring you a conversation from the pool of black genius to inspire, engage, and help you unleash your own imagination. Today's episode is with Harlem socialite and style icon, Lana Turner. Born at the Women's Hospital on West 110th Street and still residing in the neighborhood decades later, Miss Turner is quintessential Harlem, a landmark unto herself. A mathematician of dressing, Miss Turner does not just put clothes on, but uses her body as a medium in which she expresses her appreciation and preservation of life, style, and beauty, or as she likes to refer to it, painting the body canvas. A doyen of mid-20th century fashion and muse of New York Times street style photographer Bill Cunningham, Lana Turner and I were introduced almost a decade ago at the historic Abyssinian Baptist Church in Harlem when I was looking for a few hats for a fashion story while in grad school. Upon meeting and chatting with her, I realized quite quickly that it was she who needed to be photographed in her wardrobe and in her hats, of which there are upwards of, wait for it, 500. Well, actually, I believe the exact number is 638. But she's oh so much more than her sartorial prowess. Producer, director, preservationist, historian, writer, and swing dancer are just some of the roles she waltzes through. Recorded during quarantine, part two of this conversation with Lana Turner charts New York's own black migration, the birth of the Harlem Renaissance, Marcus Garvey's downfall, and the advice she would give her 20-year-old self. Be sure to rate and review us over on Apple Podcasts and also share some of your favorite moments with us over on Instagram at Black Imagination Podcast. Ms. Turner has been such an influence on me and the way that I think about life, and I'm excited to share her wisdom with all of you, my brilliant cohorts. It is with great pleasure to introduce Harlem's own oracle, Ms. Lana Turner, to the IBI Podcast. I love it. You literally slid right into my next question, which was about Harlem. Um, And because it is such a part of who you are, um, along with music, which you spoke about earlier, and jazz in particular, um, And mixed in that little stew is also just the time of the Harlem Renaissance itself. Could you speak a bit about the ways in which Harlem and jazz and and just the cultural milieu of existing physically in that space has... Mm -hmm created for you and shaped the way in which you see the world and appreciate it? The one thing about music is that it is the language that is universal. 
And in that universality, um, there are things that we can gravitate toward, meaning types, let's say. Jazz for me was it. It goes back again to my father, who had all of the records and, um, you know, it didn't matter whether it was Arthur Prysock or, you know, Nancy Wilson or Jim, Jimmy Lunsford. He had every single um, thing that one would want to uh, listen to. And I could not, for the life of me, not want to listen to it. So when he wasn't around, I just put his music on. Um, and of course, knowing that he was a part of the uh, happenings throughout Harlem, my mother and father came to Harlem in the late 1930s. Both were born in Georgia, but they met in Florida and made their journey here. I was born in 1950. So they had a long time to happy, have happy times together, even through the depression, um, for you know, just hanging and doing things that they specifically love. So I think about you know looking at all those black and white pictures, uh, watching them, um, you know, at looking at them at tables, let's say, and and you know the social clubs and that kind and the formal pictures. So that's all in Harlem. So growing up and looking at that, you automatically know that this is your place. You know the people you love. This was their place, and so somehow without consciously thinking about it. But knowing that it's already inside of me, the minute I hear the music, I know it's mine. Mm. It's a language that speaks to me. I know that the way those rhythms move, I know that it was born out of somebody else's sometimes, not always joy, but hardship. Because that's who we are. We have had to make joy and love out of what is hard and harsh and things that have just not been even for us, but we have made them more than even. We have come up somehow in the middle of the most horrific situations with musicians who could sit around and compose something about your feet are too big. I mean, really? Okay. Um, or the fish fry where the police came and locked everybody up. This is a song, you know, or a Billy Strayhorn, you know, finding his way to Duke Ellington's apartment and then writing, take the A train. You know, these are black people. Now white people have had, and there's nothing about, there's nothing wrong with any of this. They've, had, they've been riding the A train long before Billy Strayhorn got here. Now, I, they didn't write anything about a train that I know of, but the A train, take the A train, still lives <laughs> long after he actually pinned those notes. And in fact, you know, it's always something that leads off. How do we get someone like Ella Fitzgerald, mm. whose voice, is the most clarion call to what is the thing that pulls the heart. No? And I keep thinking about what those things, those elements are. So it's not just, just what is the song, but what's behind that? And what's behind that are the stories that the rest of us, who are not the composers or the musicians, can write but automatically 
identify with what that means. So we take the pain and we have created humor. We have taken the blues and we have created stories. And we have talked about in those stories, everything from floods where we're totally wiped out to lovers who we have dismissed and discuss all the others who are just waiting at the door, <laughs> you know? But here we are with joy, with love, with humor, and yes, sadness, you know, sometimes gloom, but it's all in that music. And I cannot help but relate to it. Harlem was one of those bright lights at a time of the Harlem Renaissance, and I dare say a bit before that, but certainly during the Renaissance and thereafter. For the Harlem Renaissance, which uh, oftentimes people will, at least academics, will disagree in terms of when it actually started or when it actually ended. So if we use something like, you know, at the, on the eve of uh, Armistice Day, World War I, when black servicemen have come home from uh, fighting in Europe, the, and remember, you know, we are at a place in 1919 when these black servicemen have come home who were not allowed to fight with the U.S. servicemen in the war for democracy. No, the French, they fought along with the French and the French decorated them. So here you have these black men who have come back. Oh, and one other thing I should say is that Black servicemen going to fight in World War I really represents the second time Black folks en masse crossed the Atlantic Ocean. Ooh. First time is slavery. Second time to fight on behalf of the United States for war. So they come home, unlike the first time, not in chains, but they come home expecting a different place in America, only to discover that they were being stamped as lower class citizens than when they left. Hence, we get the red summer of 1919 where there are riots in about 25 American cities. Because it's all about the put down of this pride and this sense of self and knowing that we in fact are not those second class citizens. We are primary and have always been primary to this country. We built this country deeply. So having said all of that, the eve of the servicemen coming home, marching proudly Fifth Avenue, finally uptown to James Reese Europe's music. James Reese Europe, black man, he plays jazz with these musicians throughout Europe, France in particular. 
the French think that there is something magic in the horns because they have never heard music like this before. <laughs> and I just love the entire notion of that. <laughs> so if we just take that and bring the servicemen home, they are coming home to their wives and their girlfriends, and this is a new America for them. And they are not about to, as a composite group, step back into the Jim Crow car willingly. Hence the red summer, blood flowing, mostly ours, all over the United States. So with those grim facts, <laughs> we begin what is truly the Harlem Renaissance. Now, of course, there are scholars who would say, well, I mean, you know, to have a Renaissance would, would suggest that, of course, you know, there was something before that to, you know, illustrate the sort of rising phoenix out of the ashes. Well, you can argue whatever you want to argue. Um, there was not a time like this in uh, our history prior to this moment where uh, there is the great migration that starts mid-1915, um, and if not a little bit before. Black folks living in New York were living in San Juan Hill and the Tenderloin District. Those who could afford to lived in plusher surroundings in Brooklyn. That was where the black middle class lived and upper classes. Uh, they fled there. I know this is becoming a whole history thing, so stop me. It's perfect. It's perfect. <laughs> okay. And where's San Juan Hill uh, and the Tenderloin now? Okay, so Tenderloin would be roughly the 20s, all on the West, on the west side. So think um, 6th, 7th, 8th Avenue going over. Um, so up to uh, 20s, up to maybe the 30s, Tenderloin. And then, and there's stretches in between of places that Black folks uh, congregated and had businesses. Um, and then the um, San Juan Hill would be in the 60s. So uh, if you think the areas in and around Lincoln Center and slightly below that, you'd pretty much get an idea. Uh, so Harlem becomes a very attractive place for a few reasons. One, the uh, Irish and um, the Irish primarily were always too, as whites considered at the bottom of the barrel heap in New York City. And so there was always this fight for, you know, social climbing, civil climbing, that sort of thing. But they lived in the same neighborhoods as black folks. And oftentimes across the street or one building and then another. There were any number of riots and racial strife and lots of fighting. This is prior to moving to Harlem. Um, and so Harlem, because of the subway, uh, think of the numbers one subway, it really was the number one, um, comes to um, New York. Well, New York had already had, sub, had trains, but they were on elevated railroad tracks. So think of the L. There's still those L's in uh, Brooklyn and in the Bronx. So think of the L's. Those are elevated trains. New York was full of those. By 1904, the first subway was the number one train, and it went up 
from City Hall up to up uh, the same route it more or less has at this time, going north on um, in Manhattan, coming north up through Harlem. The number two train is an extension of the number one. When the number two train was being planned, that train coming into Harlem in 1904, uh, let's see, the number one train made its appearance October of 1904. The number two train came a month later because it's just an extension. But real estate developers knew this was coming way before it would be premiered. And as a result, began to uh, speculate on development. So, you know, the, Harlem already had its own, it was its own entity. It already had uh, middle-class uh, German Jews. It had, uh, you know, other whites. You know, if you were of the merchant class or the middle class, you had managed to find your way to Harlem uh, because it was practically a city unto itself. Prior to that, it was a suburb. Think of Alexander Hamilton, 1804. And then after the English are mad and they leave, they burn the whole place down. And it takes a minute for the trains to evolve. Those are the elevators that I mentioned. They come around the 1870s. So there was a way to get here because you could use the second or third Avenue L uh, to get to Harlem. Those L's would oftentimes um, have developers create buildings. Think of the east side of Harlem, like 1st, 2nd, 3rd Avenue. Think about those buildings. Those are tenement buildings. They go but so far. Well, trains used to pass those buildings. So that wasn't considered the exclusive part of Harlem in the 1870s. Exclusive would have been um, going uh, west, getting past Park Avenue, and coming over to Fifth and Madison, Lenox. Lenox was the heart drop. Seventh Avenue. So think about all of those stunning townhouses and beautiful brownstones that grace that. Well, the reason they're there because people have their own community. This Harlem at the time, at this time, 1880s, 1890s was a city, it had its own hotels, it had its own business district. Oscar Hammerstein had its own opera house here. There were theaters, there were untold stores, there were beer gardens. This was Harlem before black people came. Now, there were already black people living here, not in the numbers, but there were already black people who were living in Harlem, even during this time. Come the early 1900s, um, there, is, there are changes because the minute there is speculation on the subway, these developers are now putting up buildings on avenues and putting up buildings where they can and turning those contracts over on paper. So in other words, you, Dario, would see this nice little piece of property, let's say on 136th Street and let's say Lenox Avenue, where nothing is built. And you would say to yourself, oh great, I'm gonna go ahead and I'm gonna buy that. And on paper, you have the contract, you probably will close, let's say in, let's say 45 days. 
But before you even get close to closing, you have identified someone else who will buy the paper from you. Now, there's no building up. They're going to buy the paper from you. And they do that. And then somebody buys the paper from them. By the time the building is built, whoever is holding that contract has already lost. Mm. There is no way to make that much money back on those rents. So now you have a series of buildings that have no tenants, that are empty, that um, the white middle class that was expected to come and fill these apartments did not materialize. So you enter um, a real estate agent. He wasn't an agent at the time. Well, maybe he was. He made some attempts. He was uh, Philip Payton, was from Massachusetts. And he came to New York um, and had a hard time trying to figure out what to do. So he was a barber. And then he was a porter in a real estate office. And it gave him this idea that why not try to entreat the larger black masses of people who are living in the Tenderloin and the San Juan Hill districts to move to apartments where they didn't have to run into the violence of living in places that were substandard. So he convinces these white owners, one, to allow him to fill them with black tenants at a higher rent than would have they would have gotten from white tenants. Mm -hmm. And that was the beginning. Because even though the money was a lot more, it was more important to Black people to have finally a neighborhood of their own, a place of their own, and not one in which you are crammed with people who are filled with, you know, just racism. And, and it's not just racism at that point. People are looking for a way up and a way out. Human nature, I suppose. But major clash just because you are Black or brown. Yes, now fast forward to Armistice, the troops coming home, and this birth, this cultural birth, which I think also in your, your research and your knowledge that it was not necessarily even centered around Harlem per se, but was really a movement that was happening that extended to Philadelphia and some of these other places. Oh, absolutely. Uh, the Harlem Renaissance actually did uh, influence and it was, could be found in many other places. But the reason for the Harlem Renaissance or for it to have that label was a few things. This is part of the great migration. So once you get, once we have gotten the black community moving out of San Juan Hill and moving here, um, when other people are enticed to come north as part of that wave, Harlem is the place they're pouring into. So I was just trying to set the stage for that. And this is how it happens. Setting the stage for that, for people who are leaving uh, cotton fields and coming to work in industry, also brings a tide of musicians and writers. For the first time, in our history were black writers uh, entreated to a contest 
to be able to win monetary financial prizes for work. It's the first time this is going to happen. It happens as a result of Opportunity Magazine, which is the organ of the NAACP. And this is W.B. Du Bois, who is the, um, yeah, no, the Crisis Magazine. Yes, I was going to say the Crisis. Because Elaine Locke wrote for Opportunity, and they were kind of... He did. So uh, let me just reverse that. So, yes, but they were both magazines, and they both did the same thing. They both were interested in the uplift of our of black people, both sociologically, economically, spiritually, etc. But politically, political issues were always at the heart of what it meant to move forward. Mm-hmm. Um, so, with the crisis and W. B. Du Bois at its helm, that was one publication. And um, the opportunity was the uh, National Urban League, was the Urban League's uh, uh, piece. And Charles Johnson, who was a sociologist, who came to New York, became its editor. Alain Locke, whose name should factor into everything Harlem Renaissance, and who, I must say, in some very diffuse way is the real reason why I have taken on this huge archival project of my own, which is another tangent I won't get into right now. But Elaine Locke's name should be on the tip of everyone's tongue. It's certainly in everyone's book. So you'd be hard pressed to open any book on the Harlem Renaissance or anything tangentially connected and not see Elaine Locke's name. Thank God for Jeffrey Stewart, who has, in fact, written the life of Elaine Locke and for whom a Pulitzer on last year was awarded. Good. But going back to Elaine Locke, who was essentially born in Philadelphia, who uh, went to Harvard, who became the first Black Rhodes Scholar. Uh, He goes, he's the first Black Rhodes Scholar in 1909. Mm -hmm. He, uh, uh, is um, and comes back to the States and goes to Harvard for his graduate degree. This is an extraordinarily well-trained, very uh, erudite uh, scholar who has thought about a lot of things. He, in fact, um, the only place one could actually work as a scholar at this time is Howard University. So Elaine Locke, who is this philosopher who has spent extraordinary times with the top philosophers of the age, takes all of this knowledge and is off to Howard, the only place in which he could make a living as an academic. It is through his travels and his experiences that he, in fact, begins to imagine a different way to uh, uphold and to elevate and see that our race progresses. And it is through what he sees as the new Negro. Take the page from the servicemen who have come back from war, who are saying, I am not the low class citizen I was before, I am this. Elaine Locke does the same thing 
with the way he looks at what is going to elevate the race. Du Bois has a different idea. He says that everything is political. It should be in your writing. It should be in your artwork. Locke says, no, no. The way he sees it, we will be liberated through beauty. Just imagine, in 1924, 1925, this black man says the liberation comes through beauty. That is even groundbreaking today in 2021. And yet, while he could not see all of his vision take place, we have but to think about those elements in our world that have made any sense, that have gone back and looked at the African form, what he espouses, taken that and made something of it. What does he say? He says, but look at the only true American art. Black people have taken hymns and turn them into the most amazing American concertos of gospel and spirituals. These are things that did not exist before. So when he nurtures these writers, whether it be Hughes or Toomer, I should say all the names, Gene Toomer or Langston Hughes or, um, Account a Cullen, then there's Eric Walren, there's Claude McKay. Mm -hmm. uh, he didn't seem to be as thrilled about the women, but they were there nonetheless. There was Jesse Fawcett, there was Nella Larson, there was Zora Neale Hurston, there was Dorothy West, you know, and Spencer. And a part of that is also because Elaine Luck was also queer. He was also gay and, and and kind of open in a way you know an open open, open in a way that if you saw the signs i think you would know right but he couldn't be but so open and so here's that other element and i think jeffrey stewart is just such a genius in writing this book because he uses primarily letters uh that have been exchanged so that has really formed the basis for the uh, context around what's going on with Locke. But Jeffrey espouses that because Locke knows that he is who he is in terms of his sexuality, he is not the one who is going to be in a march. He is not going to be the one who has joined the NAACP. He is not going to be the one where the black middle class will be able to scrutinize him up close. But what he does with this isolation is that he has created a way and he has espoused a philosophy that cuts right through it all and makes and elevates a different platform for black people that you cannot dismiss so readily. Mm -hmm. It is for that reason 
because there is a certain level of alienation, he has had an opportunity to look at what is going on in those worlds, but imagining in the way he sees things, that he can turn that around and make that work. He uses every element at his disposal. He is the one who looks at every fresco all over Europe. He is the one who has the conversations with others who are deemed, at least from a Western European sense, marginalized. May they be princes from Madagascar or, you know, some elevated other who have who has also found themselves at Oxford, people from India account. He even uses Tennyson. And he uses Tennyson by saying, if he has written these poems that are universal in its output, I can take a page out of Tennyson and I can use that and turn that right around where I see the elevation of the Black race. And he is tireless. So the Harlem Renaissance, uh, generally speaking, I think most of us will always think first, and I think, um, honestly, we think about the literature first. And we should. Everything else is there, but literature is the thing that comes first. I, I dare say that most people have not seen at least a hundred pictures of Langston Hughes someplace. Yeah, and and let me circle back. Tennyson is is I, Irish. Yes. Yes. So so the the for for listeners uh, to understand a bit what Elaine Locke is speaking about is you know for Tennyson to be revered and really be a part of what was considered this Irish Renaissance in thought and literature, Elaine Locke took that as a model for black culture, that it was that it was the writing, it was our own very specific culture, that although it feels very um, singular and personal, is actually the key to a universal acceptance and wanted to create for black people a kind of Renaissance that literature allowed for in Ireland, also a group of people that were considered less than and the bottom of the barrel. So that explains Tennyson. Thank you for explaining <laughs> the shortcut. <laughs> but think, um, and he didn't rest, uh, Locke did not rest solely on literature. He, he had all of that going because he, in the back of his mind, or not even the back of his mind, Locke continued to uh, nurture mm -hmm. writers. Uh, he physically did not live in Harlem. So when I go back and talk to your point about writers who uh, were not necessarily people who lived or who were of Harlem at the time of the Harlem Renaissance, Locke might be one of those major proponents of that. He didn't actually live here. He came to live in New York much later, and he certainly took the train from Washington quite often to Harlem because Harlem was also, or New York City, was the center of the publishing world. So if you expected to be published 
and you were as mobile as Langston coming out of Missouri and, you know, people traveling from, you know, great distances to be in a place like this. Well, that is, that was the reason. That's the destination. The other thing, let's just go to music for half a second. Think about music. The music was broadcast. So that if you were at a club, you know, a big place, let's say at the Savoy uh, or some other club, that music was broadcast around the country. So they knew who the bands were. So if Count Basie was coming through, you know, Wichita, Kansas, or someplace, Dubuque, Iowa, or wherever they were going, you knew about the Count Basie band. You knew about Fletcher Henderson. You knew Jimmy Lunsford. You knew these people because you heard them in big time New York City on the radio. Or you could have heard them, I mean, they had broadcasts coming out of Chicago, same thing. But to be in places where your music and your name and your abilities could be appreciated on a larger scale, other than the dances you might play going to smaller places, you were trying to make it to New York. Mm -hmm. The music publishers were here. People who were going to buy your songs were here. Other people you collaborate with were here. Savoy Ballroom is built. Clubs are being built. Harlem is jumping. There are speakeasies. There are clubs underground. There are clubs overground. There are and there are places that never shut, that never close down. Never close down. So Harlem is rife with the kind of energy, either you're talking about the dark tower that Alelia Walker, the daughter of Madam C.J. Walker, a uh, black first woman, millionaire, hair care products, um, who spends her mother's money, but does it in such a way where she has brought together artists and writers and musicians of the time into her place, now the site of the County Cullen Library on 136th Street. That, not that building, but that site, because the major built that main building was knocked down. That building at the top was called the Dark Tower. And she called it the Dark Tower after County Cullen's poem. Mm. The Dark Tower. So everything had a kind of connected tissue, whether it be the writers or the artists, and, and of course the the um, sculptors. Um, think also uh, politically what is going on in the streets of Harlem. 135th Street at this time is our main thoroughfare, not 125th Street, that would come later. There's still white folks living below 125th Street. They have not all absconded and run away. They have been over at that, by the mid twenties, they have truly been leaving, you know? So by now you don't have a lot, there's still a few. Uh, and Harlem is becoming darker and darker, skin tone. Mm -hmm. But our main thoroughfare 
was 135th Street. So think Lenox Avenue, about where the Schomburg is now, even though the main building was right down the street. Harlem Hospital was around, but Harlem Hospital did not take up what you now know of as 135th Street. It was on 136th Street in an older building. So what you would have to imagine, you would have to, uh, in your mind, take away Harlem Hospital that you know of now. Behind that is a children's playground and behind that going to Fifth Avenue is a school. Across the street is the Lenox Avenue, is the Lenox Terrace housing development. If you could subtract all of that and in your mind put up buildings, houses, brownstones with hundreds of signs, uh, rooms to rent, music to be played, um, cleaners, uh, hardware store, grocery, these are all black businesses. Because now you walk up and down 135th Street and you just can't even, there's no semblance of how could that, you don't think of it that way. That's because all of those things have been obliterated from sight. And you don't know what was sitting there before. But that's the way you have to think about it. And then you think about the energy. So politically, the corner of 135th Street was the soapbox era. You would stand on a ladder and you would espouse whatever your political leanings were and you would have a crowd. That's the way it worked. Think I think there's a, there's a, isn't there a famous picture of Marcus Garvey giving a speech and I, if I'm not mistaken, it's right there. Am I correct? There, but Marcus Garvey, there are several, Marcus Garvey is really interesting. We could spend a whole several hours on Marcus Garvey. But Marcus Garvey had many things. When he comes to the United States, he had already established his UNIA in Jamaica before coming here. And I was just trying to remember the exact year, so you're gonna have to maybe look that up. But uh, he comes to Harlem um, after having made a tour through South America and seeing what was going on in terms of black bodies and how we were perceived and what we were doing in South America. He comes here because he thinks he's going to be raising money to send to his organization in Jamaica. But he comes here and quickly understands that he has got to do something to attract the attention to his Universal Negro Improvement Association. I think I got that right. Um, and he, uh, his first speech actually, he's invited to speak by uh, it's either Hubert Harrison or A. Philip Randolph. I forget which one. But anyway, they're in a hall. And Marcus Garvey is so taken aback, he literally falls off the stage. So it doesn't bode so well for him at that moment. But he takes a page and a cue from a white evangelist who has uh, speaking authority and he seems to be able to get crowds. So Marcus Garvey adopts that um, way of emoting as a way to get people. So his number of places that Marcus Garvey spoke, I have no doubt that he was on 135th Street, but there are many places that have markers that will uh, tell you exactly where he was. So he had a tent on 138th Street at one point, 
Um, and he had um, 138th between Lennox and 5th. There is right now a school called the St. Mark's Evangelist School. There's a marker on that building that tells you that Marcus Garvey used the site as one of his halls. So there are markets, and there should be markets all over for Marcus Garvey, because not only did he speak to the common people, he spoke to the common Black person in a way that Du Bois had not reached, in a way that Elaine Locke would never have thought about, because that was just not in his particular purview in terms of the way he would speak to anybody. Um, it wasn't Booker T. Washington type either. Marcus Garvey had a different appeal and he had people decorated, you know, in their marches and their parades to say, here we are. This is who we are. We will take our working overwork cells and try to figure out a way to get back to Africa where we are those tall men and women. He gave people some way to see themselves in this period of cultural diversity and music popping and dances happening and food being, you know, shuffled from what, and people visiting Harlem and great migration going on. There is so much going on at one time. But Garvey is the one who has reached the imagination of the poorest of the poor. Mm. And they respond. They take out memberships. They belong to various and sundry factions because Garvey also uh, creates industry. He creates shops. He creates uh, garment factories. You know, a lot of what they wore, they made. Mm. He creates stores. So there was this entrepreneurial element that was a very important part of what he was doing. Marcus Garvey's fall, however, was the fact that he only kept his counsel to himself. And when he thought about things, that's the way they should be. Now, you know, when it worked, it worked. But when it didn't, it really crashed. And, you know, Marcus Garvey was not someone who readily took advice from people that he probably employed to give him advice. He really followed his own sensibility. Well, Ms. Turner, that's, um, that's like, yes, you're right. Like that is a whole, no. yeah, no, no, it's not even a whole other thing. Like it's, it's, it's super important, but like, I mean, these leaders are amazing, but I want to talk about you. Um, and also, and also my, a phone is about to die and my computer's about to die. So I did want to ask you just a few more questions just to wrap up and not take up too much of your time. One is, you know, when I think of you, um, my father says hello, by the way, um, oh. and my parents, they always ask about you. Um, <laughs> but, you know, when I think about you and something that my father said, he was like, that is probably the most self-actualized human being I know. Like <laughs> she is just fully herself. And when I think about you, I really think about, you know, the art of living. Yes. Um, and the art of, 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 of 
of, of human existence. Um, and you mentioned that you are now the seven zero. What would you tell 20-year-old Lana Turner about being 70? Well, what would I say to a 20-year-old uh, Lana at 70 was that um, I couldn't articulate it at 20, but I could articulate it at 70. But I was it at 20. And I'm still more of that at 70. And that is to find a way to always be yourself. And it goes back to something we talked a little bit about earlier. And it had to do with going inside, talking to God, realizing that you are not the center of the universe. The universe is your center. And finding a place to level your life within it, you don't then have to consult the oracles. All you need to do is find that place within yourself that you can find where it's silent and it's quiet and it speaks to you. It will allow you to stand tall in adversity. And if you manage to get to 70, you will have many opportunities to be in the middle of adversity. I would say, always take the high road. There are lots of people along the way who may want to pull you back or say things that are not very nice and you will always spend time evolving, being stronger, being taller, that taking the high road will save you conversation, grief, and untold craziness that you should avoid because I would hope that you have more important things to do. I would say, do not wait for someone to give you an invitation to get dressed and go out and have yourself a ball. I say, because you have meditated, because you can stand tall, because you can take the high road, you have no problems pulling together the most fanciful outfit making a reservation at the most amazing restaurant for one. <laughs> making your life singular so that when you are endowed with someone who is either your soulmate or your love, it adds to the cake. It should never be the cake. You are the cake. Because you have meditated, you have taken the high road, you have stood tall, and now you're so assured within yourself that all you need to do is take your walk on the runway you created. You are perhaps a black woman 
listening to this, you have every reason to try and figure out what makes you truly tick and not some arbitrary rule of thumb that makes you imagine that you must measure yourself by someone else's yardstick. You should always have one in your personal pocket that you refer to. Well, those are a few things. <laughs> I'll take it. Um, so first of all, Ms. Turner, I could talk to you forever, and um, and I'll have to have you back on to talk really more about um, Harlem and some of these pivotal figures um, that have really shaped the the, the neighborhood and uh, culture that we know today. Um, but I also just want to acknowledge you for being that oracle. I don't know. I think I've told you that your nickname is the oracle. <laughs> so we all, you know, you've been such such an important part of, of, of my life and growth and just understanding, yeah, the art of living and the art of, of, of editing, of, of, um, of chasing beauty, um, unabashedly and unapologetically. Um, (laughs) and, and, and then also providing, that same level of, of, of knowledge and vision to everyone that you encounter, either verbally or non-verbally. And I think that is the response that people feel when they uh, you know, encounter you on the street, um, just being yourself. And so I just want to thank you for that. And it has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you again so much. Um, thank you. Have a wonderful afternoon. I love you and appreciate you so much. And I'm so happy that I now get to share (laughs) this conversation with others. Well, just know, Dario, that I love you more. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that you are a very important person in this world. Not just to me or the people who know you. I know your parents thoroughly adore you and they believe the same. But I know that, and I know that as the person that you have become and are becoming, that there is no limit to what it means to be realized as a full human being, artist in so many ways, writer in so many ways, visual person, who just pulls together things out of the collective intellectual imagination. And that is the thing that I love about you. And it's obvious in just saying just those few things that I think the world of you and the world expects more and more. And they would be remiss if they didn't have you on the cover of everything coming soon. <laughs> okay. All right. I, I have 5% left on my computer, which probably gives me just enough to shut down. So thank you so much, Ms. Turner. This has been an absolute pleasure. Uh, have a great afternoon. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye.
Thank you all so much for tuning in to part two of this conversation with the indefatigable Lana Turner. I love speaking with Miss Turner and now I'm sure you know exactly why. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to send it out to a friend you think would really enjoy this conversation, and also be sure to rate and review us on iTunes, which really helps out a lot. Shout us out over on Instagram, at Black Imagination Podcast, and we're on Twitter, at Black Imagination, which is BLK Imagination. Tweet some of your favorite quotes with the hashtag ProcessingThePod, and if you're able to drop some coins to support this work, please click the support link in the show notes. Thank you all so much for spending time with us today and as always remember that black imagination is liberation stay curious and keep dreaming <laughs>